Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, it's a genuine delight to have Joe Mullings, who is the chairman and chief executive of the Mullings Group, and he is also the chief vision officer for the MRI network. Joe, welcome. Marcus, thanks for having me. Excited. Me too. I know that you're not a wallflower by any stretch of the imagination, so I'm looking forward to upsetting a few people along the way today. Let's kick off with a a quick 90-second summary of your career thus far. Sure. I started in the search business December 4th, 1989, for a company called Management Recruiters International. I went out on my own after two years down in Miami, Florida. And then uh, since then, uh, we have grown to a run rate of north of $10 a year in fees. We also have a full production company with our organization. And our specialty is life sciences, medical devices, and we work worldwide. Excellent. Okay. So let's start out with the million-dollar question. Why is recruitment generally done so piss poorly? (laughs) Oh, gosh. So you could start a couple. I think owners oftentimes are more interested in paying themselves than their business. So I can hear the squeezing sound most owners take out of the firm rather than reinvest pay higher salaries, pay higher incentives to the individuals who work for you and stop trying to stranglehold everything coming out of that firm. I think that's the biggest issue in search from day one. How much money can you get away with paying somebody versus paying the right people to come in and change people in company lives? So there is a rule, which is you sell the way you buy. That then suggests that it may be okay in their mind for their recruiters to accept crap fees. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. Um, and a lot of times that lack of discipline at a desk level or fee level is exactly what unwinds the industry. It's a race to the bottom. And if I hear another client say, I can get that search done for 20% instead of your 25%, I might throw myself out a window because why would they be chatting with me if they can get it done at 20%? Well, the, the obvious response to that is, well, when you went to that recruiter and t- uh, took the uh, gave them the brief, what did they tell you? At which point the normal response is, I haven't had that conversation. Well, why not? It, right. it just strikes me that there's an awful lot of idiocy floating around on the recruitment side. But let's look on the employer side. Why would you choose to try and stiff the people who are providing you with the most important resource in your organization on the fee. Why do people think like that? I think it comes down from leadership. I also think that search is like any other profession. You've got a reasonable percentage of people who are competent in the middle of distribution curve. On the bottom end, you've got incredible incompetency. And at the very high end, you have overperformers. And Overperformers never have a problem getting their fees that they want. And they walk away from the fees that they don't want to try and negotiate for. So organizations, corporations massively disrespect the search business. And the search business also deserves a level of disrespect because of some of the less than professional people who were in it. Absolutely. Let's uh, dig a little bit deeper into this. Why is it hiring managers? so frequently do a cut and paste of a seven-line brief or a seven-line job description, give it to a search firm, and then expect them to be able to provide somebody who's competent and fit for purpose. 
Uh, usually it's because while hiring is the most important thing on a hiring manager's agenda, it's usually pushed to the bottom of it. One is it's a painful process. Two is most organizations are inept at hiring properly uh, and they hire exclusively off of resumes. While a resume is very, very important in the process, it shouldn't be the answer all. And recruiters have a high level of responsibility of accepting exclusively a position description when, in essence, there should be a kickoff call. There should be a digging as to why is this position open. There's a digging that takes place is what are the first things in the 30, 90, 180 days this person's going to be doing? The position brief is useless in most cases because what you just pointed out, it's a cut and paste. It's a re-gift that's been passed around since the beginning of time of that position description. And often it's a re-gift of the person they've just fired, who they've hired unsuccessfully. So that strikes me as an act of repeated madness and insanity. Yeah, so they're, they're making the mistake of replacing the person in the exact role, making the assumption that there's no evolution to that. One of the best position descriptions you can write is, and we have quite a bit of success with this, is who will you become when you take this position? That should be the leadoff of every single position brief. Who will you become over the next three years when you take this role with our organization? Now, granted, this question. some of those may be you're not going to become anybody better than you are today because this is a dead-end role. That's fair for the person taking this job if that's what they aspire to. But every single position brief, and this is what I challenge my recruiters is, ask your client, who will this person become over the next three years because of this role? And it will be amazing when you open up your recruiting pitch to the population, you're able to answer that. Very interesting. That's a fabulous question and one that I bet is almost never asked. So let me ask you this. Why is it that so many hiring managers focus on lag indicators rather than leading indicators when they're looking to recruit? They tend to recruit for skills, experience, and historical results, which tell me that Joe may have been good once. Um, they don't tell me whether he's good now. They don't tell me whether he was lucky, whether he was carried. He just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And they don't tell me if you burnt out. Whereas the predictors of success are things like attitudes, beliefs, and values. Their cognitive abilities, their ability to adapt, learn, uh, adjust uh, to current environment. And most importantly, habit. What do people do uh, need to do repeatedly every day, every week, every month without having someone's boot on their neck in order to be successful in this role? Mm -hmm. Why is it they're so focused on what's happened in the past rather than what is going to happen in the future? Well, it's the process. It's always been done that way. And, and you know, I, I don't know how many organizations give some deep, thorough thought to their hiring processes. And you pointed out there's a couple buckets. There's the cognitive intelligence, there's the work rate, right? Because you can't fix lazy and you can't fix stupid. Those are the two things that I interview for immediately. So I look at those two things. And then also scenario dictates what somebody did in one environment. And if you give the same job description, but you put that person in another environment, they may very well excel or crash and burn based upon the environment that they're in. And leadership has been, and I mean from a CEO down, has had very little, and I don't like to use the word training, has given very little 
thought insight as to what works best in their organization. Our organization has a $500,000 a year per desk average billing. It's three times higher than the industry norm. And I am proud that almost every single one of my people are misfits and probably could not get hired in every, any other organization. What we've done is we've looked at what is our organization, what excels in it, what doesn't excel in it, and then interview to that versus interviewing to a template that most organizations will point to and refer to during their interview process. Absolutely. And making sure that there is that job fit and that cultural fit is really important. And being able to ensure that you're balancing your team as well with the right mix of people, I think is also something that tends to be overlooked because I see hiring managers hiring their own image only weaker far, far too frequently. Thoughts? Yeah. And hiring somebody who disagrees with you is not a normal behavior when it's one healthy hiring managers actually seek out. You tend to find echo chambers when you longitudinally take that down range on the performance of an organization, they end up imploding. And so that echo chamber, I mean, you can point to General Electric, GE, which that was a hiring echo chamber for decades. And that is ultimately what the unwinding was of that organization. One of the most difficult things I've had to do as a leader is go forth and seek out people who are smart, who have high level of integrity, who have an incredible work rate, but also in the interview process, challenge me and actually disagree with me until we can unwind the situation and understand each of our perspectives and it wasn't arguing for the sake of arguing, but it was arguing for the sake of understanding. And that, is, that takes a lot of time. But when you do that correctly, you then get this elite band of people that can change a world. I couldn't agree more. I, I think part of the problem often is that managers reach a level where their ego is brittle and they see challenge as a negative. Whereas in fact, virtually every successful organization that I know, and I've interviewed a lot of sales leaders of some of the most successful technology companies on the planet, and a common red thread is that they encourage constructive conflict. They do have knockdown fights behind closed doors. Once they've agreed a course of action, then they all get behind it. But they expect their people to stand up and have an opinion. And in order to do that, You need to have not only diversity, but you also need to have inclusiveness. And again, I see that as a major problem in a lot of Western corporations. Your thoughts? I couldn't agree more. I just got back from Israel. We were over there shooting our docuseries, True Future. And if you want to check it out, truefuture.tv. And the Israeli culture is very interesting. and and, And I've been very close to it for almost 30 years now. That culture is uncomfortable for most of the Western hemisphere because they're proponents of arguing a point. They're proponents of aggressive behavior. They're proponents of calling bullshit on their superiors in the army, in the service where you have to serve three years for a male, two years for a female out of high school, regardless of your economic strata. You are... No bone spurs then. (laughs) No bone spurs there, no. Or dad who gets you into the uh, uh, branch of the service that has no risk. So 
I love what you explained is a culture that can argue the hell out of a point, almost come to blows, but then break bread later that night and then leave the room agreeing to disagree, but move the mission forward. Those are the organizations that do well. And those are the organizations that stand up under environments like we're living in today. Absolutely. And when Darwin was talking about survival of the fittest, he wasn't talking about survival of the brawniest. No. He was talking about those that could adapt the best to the current situation. I think if you recruit for that adaptability, then your company can evolve. But too often I see companies trapped by tradition and by the way we've always done it. And when I hear that in an organization, particularly at the leadership level, essentially they're, de they're dead men walking. Because at some point, some young pretender will come along. And what, what I'm really looking forward to over the next 10 to 15 years is just seeing how many of the organizations that used to be bright, innovative, entrepreneurial, getting knocked off their perch. Have you read Safi Bakal's book, Loon Shots? I have not read it yet, but I will. And fabulous book, all about how companies grow and they're innovative and creative. And there comes a point, a tipping point, where it starts to behoove the executives to start knocking down any good ideas. And you start to see this stagnation. And you, you saw it in Apple. You know, uh, Jobs had to have the development team somewhere else mm -hmm. so that they could continue to innovate. And you, see that you saw this in Xerox. You know, Xerox used to be the gold standard, and then it kind of died on its ass when it started to become corporate. Here's what happens, and, and you have to stand guard it in every organization. We stand guard it in ours because we're a 30-plus person firm, and it's too easy to be a renegade and change the world. And then because you need to have some sort of predictability in the workforce, you start enabling SOPs, standard operating procedures. The second you start putting those standard operating procedures in, they're like anything. Taken to an extreme, they will ruin it. They will absolutely ruin it. You know, you take orderliness to an extreme, you get Nazism, right? Anything to that extreme is what you have to stand guard at. And also, it's very, very hard, very difficult to have any organization north of, I think the number is 80 people, for that not to all of a sudden start to have an erosion in production, innovativeness. And so it's super important that you make sure that you keep your teams small, you eliminate SOPs as much as possible, you get divergent thinking as long as the North Star is in agreement on everybody on the team, right? Because if you have a different North Star, then it's not going to work no matter the talent you have on the team. And then finally, I think I get more nauseous watching individuals manage their career upwards rather than make a difference in their workplace. And I see this with very large medical device corporations that people have punted the ball on taking chances because failure is not rewarded in the West, it's punished. And again, I couldn't agree more at the risk of sounding like we're in an echo chamber. Failure is your best teacher. I cannot remember a single life-changing lesson from my victories, but from a damn good kicking from my clients and from my failures and drubbings, plenty. I think to build on your point, policy tells us what not to do. Culture tells us what to do. And I think instead of being so focused on the standard operating procedures, you need a framework, you need values, and that you hire for those values. 
Because if people share your values and they share your mission and purpose, then you're all working towards the same outcome. And that's where you get people changing the world. I'm on a mission at the moment to try and, uh, well, no, let me rephrase that because you take the word try out. I'm on a mission to change the way sales is managed and run and to stop the shit behavior that's out there. Because I see so many managers encouraging their salespeople to be transactional and selfish instead of being customer-focused, service-orientated, and develop long-term customers, uh, lifelong customers, where you deliver value consistently. So when you pick up the phone to them, they actually respond immediately and they welcome your call because they know you're going to bring value. But most salespeople are instantly forgettable and most recruiters too. Well, here's why. Rewards drive behavior. And until you change the reward system, you're going to get the same behaviors in sales. So let's look at recruiting for a second, something I'm incredibly intimate with, and I have approached it in an entirely different way, which is what continues to lead to us breaking away from the industry norm. Most search firms reward sendouts, interviews, job orders written, and then ultimately, sure, a placement is celebrated, but a placement is an outcome of those things that are done. What I don't see in any organization, and I, and I lead 300 plus organizations and evaluating them in the search business, is I have not yet seen people rewarded for number of postings on LinkedIn, number of followers on LinkedIn, level of engagement of content on LinkedIn, number of shares on LinkedIn. To me, that is developing a subject matter expertise in your area of focus on your desk and you taking a inform, inspire, and educate and unwind the headlines in the industry that will make you more money in the long term than it will pursuing exclusively send outs and job orders. Absolutely. And I'd add to that, that you should be looking at account penetration and account retention. Um, And in terms of sales activity, there are four things that every manager should be measuring. Daily unique effective conversations, not the number of dials. Number of dials is just busy work. Daily unique effective conversations means you make the dial, you get past the gatekeeper, you get through to the decision maker, you contract that you're going to explain the purpose of your call, and at the end of the call, they will make a yes or a no decision. If you do five to seven of those a day, guaranteed in most professional services, you will have more than enough pipeline within seven months to do two to three times your quota. Second thing, deal velocity. How quickly opportunities and how smoothly deals are moving through the funnel. Are they bunching up so they look like Dolly Parton or Kim Kardashian? Because if the pipeline starts getting constipated like that, that's telling you that you don't have the deal velocity and there is something that's coachable that needs to be remedied. The third thing is the qualified uh, moving to closable stage. Do you have three to five times more at the qualified stage moving to closable opportunity? If you do, then chances are you will come in at three to five times your quota. And then the next one, which is a really interesting one, because seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second meeting. Now, when you consider the amount of effort that goes into acquiring an an opportunity or a lead, and then you blow it on the first meeting because you don't deliver value. KPMG in 2019 released some research that suggests only six minutes in every hour, a salesperson is in front of a C-suite executive where, where they're delivering value. So. That's a travesty. 
And when you consider someone might be uh, running, I don't know, 100 million P&L, they're on 50 grand a day. That means that they're on 4,000 an hour. No, more than that, whatever it is, 6,000 an hour. And how dare you waste even one minute of their time? Every minute you waste is $100 of the company's money wasted. You better be prepared. You should be doing your research. You shouldn't be doing your uh, housekeeping questions to uh, the C-suite. And you should be delivering value from the moment you open your mouth till the moment you leave. Otherwise, you're not going to get invited back. So those are the four metrics that really matter. And I would, I would agree with all of those. What I would do is I would change the delivery system of them. One of the things that recruiting, sending itself to the bottom of the ocean on is making the, move, making the telephone the first move they make. Look, I value phone time as much as anybody else. But having said that, the phone is going to change its position in the value prop. One of the things that we've done well, which has allowed us, again, to have more than 500,000 cash in per desk in our office, is creating your subject matter expertise online at scale where the world can see it before they even talk to you. Absolutely. So let's look, at, let's look at classic recruiting. You can become a good recruiter if you put your heart and soul into it. It takes a good solid five years if all you do is build that up around telephone calls. You just can't get enough reps in. Now, when, when that happens, you now have subject matter expertise, but you could only reach between 30 to 50 people a day on the telephone because you just can't get that many ticks in the talk on the clock. But if I go ahead and commit at scale on the platform of LinkedIn, today it's LinkedIn, in 10 years it's going to be somebody else, but just stay with me on the platform. If on LinkedIn there's 660 million people, and in my specialty, let's call it half a million people in my specialty, and I put in the time, to add value and content value to the marketplace that speaks to the industry in general, not to how great my firm is, not to how many placements I've made, but giving true value back to the market by interpreting headlines and saying what they're going to mean to the industry, i.e. to your careers. And you publish that every day and you're disciplined doing that seven days a week. You now have spread your subject matter expertise, not counting on the telephone but I have more than 110,000 sets of eyes looking at me every day in my industry by what I put out on LinkedIn. So every single cold call I make is not a C call. Every cold call I make is an A call because those people go, Joe, I follow you on LinkedIn and I believe what you say and holy crap, every morning it resonates with me. That is an entirely different phone call and I don't have to do my bullshit dance up front trying to justify the next five minutes on the phone call that is really hard work, though, which is why a lot of people don't do it on the LinkedIn platform. And it is an absolutely guaranteed ticket to success because it's so hard that none of my competitors are doing it. And I then have the voice that's heard every single day. And then the phone becomes nothing but A calls, closing calls on every single phone call. I couldn't agree more. Now, that does take time. It's not a magic bullet. No. You have to put the effort in. We generate anywhere between half a million and 700,000 a year off out the back of our LinkedIn activity. And it's providing valuable content. It's not about trying to peddle training programs or anything else. It's about helping deliver insight, delivering value that people can use in their day-to-day. And the other major benefit is the inbound inquiries, because mm-hmm. on average, I'll get between five and 12 a week. Now, you know, many of them are out of my territory, so I have to refer them on. But 
the reality is that if you get inbound inquiries, these are people who are volunteering to buy from you. You are crazy not to use a mixed media approach. You should be using social media. You should be using public speaking. You should be using video and audio. The podcast has been an incredible source of credibility because all the people who I interview bring value. I'm associated with that. They share it to their networks. Some of them uh, effectively are auditioning to become my next client. This is just genius, but and it's a lot less effort than hitting the phone and trying to do 100 dials a day. Why, why would anybody choose to torture themselves that way? And more importantly, torture the poor buggers the other end. So they have to listen to this tedious pitch, which you've told 97 times that morning. Uh, it's crazy. That's the owner's fault because the owners, look, understanding social media and media strategy is a foreign sort of thought to the search industry. And, and for that matter, a lot of industries, right? But if you understand that the entire world is already making their decisions on social platforms, the entire world is already living their lives out loud on social platforms. Nobody answers their phone anymore. Nobody wants to get a phone call. I want to get a text telling me you're going to call me before you call me. So you're basing your entire business strategy on a method of communication that now is secondary or tertiary and how I choose to engage. And these owners who romantically are tied to the very thing that are going to sink them is just mind-blowing to me. And again, I lead an organization of 300-plus recruiting offices, and we are getting them to understand that we are not throwing the phone out the door. What we're doing is we're creating tremendous value when you do get on the phone. And to your point, it is making it inbound now. And so now I, when you call me for a job order, I don't have to negotiate. You called me. I don't have to justify my $10,000 engagement retainer. You called me. I have created so much value previous to the engagement of the conversation that I'm sitting in a very powerful position and I've done it because I've demonstrated my subject matter expertise at scale, online, in front of the world, where you know I know my shit, you're calling me to solve your problem. Done. Excellent. Okay, so let's move on to more recruitment-related matters. Why do you see so few companies operating that 120 to 180-day onboarding process that is so essential to set people up for success? It requires a lot of work. It requires a tremendous amount of work. When we hire people, myself and or an organization, we're looking to hire somebody to solve a problem right now. And we need to get them in front of the problem. And what we do is we are delinquent in bringing them up to speed. We are delinquent in seeing if they have another way to potentially solve a problem. We, uh, we don't allow a, a village to onboard a person. And uh, unfortunately, most corporations, and I know search firms, have one person onboarding. They go through some bullshit process that somebody put together years ago that's not been reviewed every 60, 90 days because workplaces are changed, and so do the players. We have a village onboarding people all the time because there's no possible way that one person or two people can connect effectively with a new player. There should be no less than seven to 10 people in the first 30, 60, 90 days becoming a Sherpa for the new teammate. Well, I, I remember when I was in search, um, being put in a room to read the operations manual for three hours, 
whilst they provisioned me on the CRM and the system uh, and provided me with access to my computer. And then it was a database call and that was it. And it was sink or swim. And I see this still happening in a lot of tech firms where you have 50, 60, 100, 200% turnover rates in the sales force, which without putting too fine a point on it, is fucking crazy. Why, why would anybody choose to operate like that when all you're doing is burning through potentially high value, high talent people, but because of your laziness and indolence, you're not doing your job. You know, managers have five functions. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day, help them clear the path and protect them from acts of idiocy from senior management and manage inclusively. So everybody has a voice and everybody has an opportunity to be fully engaged. And if you look at the statistics on this, I interviewed a guy called Michael Puck from Kronos and the research that he was quoting is highly engaged employees generate 430% more profit per employee. Okay, and your business is one to prove this. 290% higher revenue per employee, there's 40% lower turnover rate, 20% higher productivity, and the companies that they measured across the S&P 500, the average of between 2010 and 2016 was about 14.3% annual return on investment uh, on their share price. The companies that were highly engaged were over 42% per annum year-on-year growth. So recruitment is where engagement with employees begins. And that onboarding process, that first 120 days, is where you as an employee are putting the employer on probation. Is this the job I was sold? Is my manager an ass? Do I like the people I'm working with? Um, can I do the job? Do I like the customers? Was I better off or will I be better off somewhere else? And if you don't sort out that onboarding process, Basically, you're just throwing good money after bad in most cases, because many of them will be set up to fail and you'll turn an A player into a B player very quickly, because who are they going to spend most of their time with? The people who are in the office who are whining, bitching, moaning, complaining, and making excuses about why everything isn't their fault. Look, you just made a, a, a very elegant, detailed point. The organizations that put the employee first and the and the customer second win every single time. Absolutely. Every time. And so when you don't take time in onboarding somebody because instead you're sacrificing them to go solve a customer's problem, that is a signal that the customer is more important than the employee, the new employee. So right out of the gate, if you are not taking the first few weeks or few months, depending on the role that you're putting that person in, and care more about them than the, than the, than the uh, customer, you were setting yourself up for failure. So that's, that's number one. Number two is that when you look at a new member of the team, there's no possible way that they can understand the rules of engagement in the organization, what is acceptable, what's not acceptable. And what they're doing is they're watching how the tenured people are uh, treated and other people outside of their universe are treated. They then take those signals and they put them into their operating system. And that's how they work moving forward in the organization, like it or dislike it, because this is the job that they have. So as a leader, it's incredibly important that you 
put that person in as many scenarios as possible and continue to demonstrate, not just lip service, demonstrate that your first two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks here, I don't give a shit if you make me $1 as a headhunter. Where in the old days, I was guilty of it. Get on the phone, 100 calls, four hours of connect time. Let me see if you could bleed out of your ears for the first two weeks. Then after that, I'll decide how much work I put into you. I used to run an office like that. What was the, the impact? It was a small office. It was always, it was a three to five desk office. You know, I had some reasonable retention, but I burned through people. And then years later, what did I do? I said, you know what? I'm going to start everybody on a large salary on a base, not tied to commission. Your first year, you're all base salary. And if you hit a certain number, then you get commission. But our base salary, American, were anywhere between 70 and $100,000. So I had the person worrying about their personal development, not making a placement. But on top of that, though, I made sure I hired the right person. I just didn't throw that 70 to 100,000 at anybody who could fog a mirror. I then was allowed to get a best athlete showing up on the playing field that day based upon cognitive intelligence, integrity, understanding the North Star, work rate, all of those things. And I said, I believe in you. I'm not going to have you worrying about paying your rent or your beer money, but I'm going to tell you that I'm absolutely going to ask you to deliver on everything on your own personal development your first year. And then every year after that will we'll take care of itself. My retention, 25 years, 19 years, 17 years, 12 years, nine years. And people come out of the gate billing their first year. No bullshit. North of 200,000 American after their second year, usually north of three to 350 American. Very good. It requires the right hiring. It requires the right onboarding. And in the beginning, I said, you've got to pay your business before you pay yourself. So you've got a really interesting, I'd say theory, but I'm going to say a law around performance versus trust. Do you mind sharing that? Yeah. So look, I'm, <laughs> I, I work with a personal coach myself, right? So I, I, I'm under construction. My ability to write and share some of the shit I put out there that really resonates with people is because I'm a fucking work in progress. <laughs> and I am a damaged soul. But there's nothing stronger than a wounded teacher with good intentions. And so, look, I care more about your personal and professional development than your comfort. That's super important to me. If you're coming to my organization to be comfortable at the expense of your personal and professional development, we try and interview that out in the process, right? So to me, if I hire you and you join this team, I just show you what the guardrails are. And I don't care if you bounce off those guardrails the whole way if you're doing it your way and it's not coming at the expense of somebody else within the organization. So to me, I am, I'm hiring you. I'm trusting you to do your job. I'm going to leave you alone. And until you give me a reason that you have violated the rule of integrity and you violated the rule of trust, that you go and do your thing. And I have been pleasantly surprised and humbled by the performance of my teammates based on that approach. So in your uh, videos, which I strongly recommend people uh, have a look at, you say that someone with high trust, but uh, not necessarily great. Both performer, yeah. So, so if you take a grid and you, and you take the X and the Y axis, 
on that grid and on the on the on the on the x-axis which is the vertical axis you put trust and trust is high at the top end low at the bottom end right and then on the y-axis you have performance right and at the on the low end left side is low performance and the right end is high performance nearly every single team that can do amazing things will absolutely sacrifice performance for a higher level of trust. No question in my mind. As you split that as a 45 degree up the middle, I would always take a high trust individual who's an average performer over the prick who is a high end performer, but incredibly low on trust. I will sacrifice performance for trust every day of the week because I'm playing long ball. If I have to play a five-minute gunfight, I might take the high performer over trust. I have to think about that. But if I'm in a long, drawn-out, foxhole battle, I will take an average shot over somebody who I know who's got my six covered, my back covered, all day long. No question about it. And thanks for sharing that. That's one of my most favorite videos that we shot in the middle of our bullpen that talks about that dynamic between people. And then you can train, you can train somebody who's a prick if they're a good human being, if you let them know that they're untrustworthy and their team thinks of them as a piece of garbage based upon their behaviors. People can be rewired if you give them that chance. Again, I agree. I've seen it for the last 35 years that top performers who allow their ego to get in the way, they trample over the backs of others, they take the credit, then they have a short shelf life. And what you tend to see is these top performers last 12 to 18 months, then they move on because they're toxic. And uh, what was really interesting, I interviewed Tom Shodorf, and one of the first things he did when he took over sales at Splunk was fire two of his, his two highest sales performers because they weren't going to adapt and they didn't uh, fit the culture that he was trying to build. And as soon as he did that, morale went up and people realized that actually they all had to row in the same direction um, and that they were looking for contributors, not takers. And it's so important because in in, in the human relationship game, we are pack animals. And we, we perform better when we collaborate. I'm curious, how much of your work historically has been working with partners? You mean partners in my business with me? No, um, third parties who either are introducers or you co-sell. Or... We don't do much at all. We don't do much co-selling or, or co-partnering at all. And I'm going to answer that, but I don't want part of this trust thing to go out the door and performer as a final item on it. Here's where the big issue is in the sales world, and I know you index heavily towards the sales world. Most sales leaders are promoted because of the best salespeople. They're not the best leaders. And typically, the best salespeople probably are also, because they're so ego-driven, and it's not a bad thing, it's a statement. And if you, if you think back about the best salespeople of all time, that it is all about them and less about their team. Now, that's changing a little bit, but for the most part, it's a reasonable assumption. And so now you take the highest selling, best salesperson whose numbers go up, and he or she gets put into director and vice president roles. And they don't understand the importance of trust 
because it's not it's not gotten them to where they've they've gone there. Sure, they have trust potentially with their customers, but they don't necessarily have trusts with their teammates. They're generally outliers because they're such great performers and they allow the sale to come to the expense of their sales team. So now you promote the best salespeople. When was the last time you heard a shit salesperson got promoted to VP as a leader? Not very often, but sometimes they are the most trustworthy and they're just average salespeople. And so that's why I think sales does so poorly in an organization that rewards exclusively numbers instead of influence on the entire team. I want to build on your point here. One of the best managers that I have ever had the genuine privilege of working with worked in a hotel chain that I had as a client. And historically, he was quite an average salesperson, but he was breathtaking as a manager because he cared. He had compassion. His, His satisfaction was derived from helping his people perform brilliantly. And he added 29% to their EBITDA in a failing uh, group of 10 hotels. And it was just a joy to behold. Now, what touching on what you've already described here, what you normally get is the top performer and you lose them as a great performer and you turn them into a shit manager who then in turn has a toxic effect on the rest of the team. So you get a double whammy. But it's worse than that. Because I think historically, indirect sales, yes, you can be selfish and you need to be selfish to be a top producer. I interviewed a chap called Tom Casty, who works at Outreach, and he made a fascinating observation, which is the people who make the best managers are never the top salespeople. They are the salespeople who have the highest account penetration because they come with compassion. They think strategically. They derive their satisfaction from seeing their clients succeed. And so when they move into management, they're all about helping their people to succeed. And what then happens is you start building really high-performing teams who end up with long-lived customers where you've got uh, deep and wide in the organization. They're buying everything that you sell. And the net result of that is that you don't have to constantly scrabble around. Because I think the single biggest driver for shit sales behavior and that rush to discount and give stuff away, free consulting, is weak pipeline. You prospect for choice. If you have a full sales pipeline that's three to five times larger at the qualified moving to closable stage, you can turn away any business. You can walk away from bad business, the business you shouldn't win, anyone who doesn't want to pay your retainer and your um, interim uh, fee and your uh, final massive fee. And I've got recruitment clients who get anywhere between 36 and 50% of first year's total gross emoluments, not just their base salary, but everything around it. Stock options, health, pension, life, introduction bonus, you name it, everything. So guarantees, you name it. And as a result, their fee could be four to five times higher than their competitors. Why? Because they differentiate in how, uh, first of all, they have a full pipeline. Secondly, they differentiate in how they sell and how they take the brief. And then they can afford to spend their time doing a proper job. Instead of, because again, um, let's talk about contingency for a second. Who on God's earth came up with the idea that you should work on 12 to 20 assignments to get paid once? (laughs) Isn't that just the thickest thing you've ever heard? Uh, Contingency, listen. 
I started my business in contingency. And if I was opening up a search firm today, I would have to do some contingency. You just would have to. The quicker though you index out of contingency and you get off of that slow drip, it's a crack pipe because you can justify it every single time because your pipeline is empty. Yet, if you would spend more time establishing and demonstrating your subject matter expertise and your value in the marketplace and and deliver insane business, you can immediately walk into retainer, but you have to have the guts to do that and commit to six to nine months of not ever going back to contingency. And most people are weak and will say that they would go broke if they did that. And that just means you ought to have a smaller car, live in a smaller apartment, and eat ramen noodles rather than be a slave to the contingency business because you want to have the right watch on or the right belt on or it's your ego. You are insane if you are subscribing to a contingency model in search. I couldn't agree more. Now, let's bring it back to the channel and selling through partners, because I think what's happening now because of COVID is your traditional direct salesperson is going to struggle, particularly if they're selling internationally. No one's going to hop on a plane and potentially expose themselves to two weeks quarantine either end if even one person on the plane tests positive. Now, uh, that means that a lot of new business will have to come through partners. But what I'm seeing is that the best enterprise salespeople recognize that not only can they not sell exclusively direct, uh, certainly within technology, because as a vendor, they are one small cog in the machine and the partners have the relationship. I interviewed my old account executive from 18 years ago, and I, I remember taking him uh, to, or him taking me to a meeting that I'd booked. And seven minutes in, he'd found a million pounds worth of pain. And within 20 minutes, we got the deal and we walked out. And he's got really good since then. But he just upsold um, one of his clients from 5 million to 100 million. And he had to manage 12 partners in that deal, 12 partners. And by allying himself with the partners and making sure that what he was offering was strategically aligned, not only with the partner's vision and objectives, but with the clients, meant that they took him straight into the board and knocked off 12 months of his sales cycle. And I think increasingly what we're going to see is that whilst top performers in direct sales up to a certain level will need to be selfish individual contributors and producers, uh, the ones who bring in the mega deals, and I've been interviewing a load of these people over the last year, the ones who are doing 40, 50, 100, 200, 300, 500 million a year, they are collaborative. They're collegiate. They are people who understand that they get so much more if they help other people get their needs met. I would agree with that 100%. And I want to stay on that sort of partnering because there's, there's an additional perspective on that. So look, if you were exclusively coming through one channel in an organization, and, and I'm glad you brought this up, and let's just call it perm recruiting for the sake of this show. And that is your only channel. And you were counting on that being your channel and you already are not a sort of career maker in that space. You're going to have an issue. One of the things that every search firm needs to do is to broaden their perspective, invest the time and the money, and increase the level 
of and the type of service you give. So example, again, because I can speak to this because it's only me, but I'm watching others do this. We went from full perm to we opened up an interim business, a contracting side of our business. Because our customers, I knew pre-COVID that our customers were doing an enormous amount of money and I wasn't getting that shot on goal. And so I then said, we're going to open up an interim business. We actually started to kick it off right at the beginning of COVID. And it's going to be a tremendous business as organizations start to onboard because they're going to look at other ways to save money, but they still need to get work done. So that's number one. So now I've broadened my offering to my client base because interim companies or contracting companies were eventually going to spread into perm. And if they already had that customer in interim, they were going to box me out potentially in perm, right? Instead, what am I doing? I'm doing it the other way. Also, our clients now are developing their hiring brand online. They are going out to PR firms in order to develop their hiring narrative to the marketplace. What have we done? We created our own production company, a multi-million dollar production company. So when you asked me the question earlier, do I partner with people? I now understand the context of it. I don't because that's my own need for excellence in everything we do. And I don't want to be at, 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 the, at the potential liability of a less than optimal person. What we're doing is we're creating our own internal offering and partnering and have tremendously broadened our product offering to clients, which is the same as bringing in outside partners, because the reason you bring in outside partners is to expand your call point or potentially aggregate that together. And our production company has accounted for more than $600,000 this year in the first eight months of the business that I would have had to put 1.8 million on the board in billings recruiting, but instead it's now production services that our clients are piping into us. That's fascinating. And again, this is really important. I, I, I think one of the things that you obviously do is you work within a very clear niche. And I think the mistake a lot of people make is they try and please everybody, in which case they please no one. And what I'm seeing is that the companies that niche very tightly are the ones that are experiencing really rapid growth. And as a subject matter expert, what I've found is the more I've niched into talking about the channel, the more that business spontaneously comes my way and the more I can charge. And because I can charge more, I can give them and devote more time and attention to them which means that they get better results. And this is a virtuous circle. And so again, it's really important to understand that when you are building your business, you need to have absolute clarity of vision. It doesn't mean that whatever you plan will survive contact with the enemy. We know it won't. Uh, you know, as soon as you publish your plan, it's already out of date. But you need to understand why you are in business, who you are trying to serve, and what value they are looking to derive. And then build your offering around those ideal customers. So again, let's talk to that. So often what I see recruiters do is they try and recruit and they don't know who their ideal customer is. So they find someone who's a 57% fit or a 72% fit. And then they end up spending an awful lot of time remediating and trying to satisfy people who they can't satisfy. What what advice would you give to recruiters uh, if they're setting up or they're trying to turn their recruitment business around? 
So you, you nailed it right there is you have absolutely got to be an expert in your industry and you've got to be able to index down like a salesperson's just not a salesperson. A marketing person's just not a marketing person. An engineer is not just an engineer. There are multiple very clear delineation between certain expertise. And so let's look at the world. The world is moving to software, firmware, service oriented. If you're only looking at making things exclusively, you're going to have an issue. So you, you've got to absolutely have a mindset of hardware, firmware, software, SaaS, et cetera. And the subtleties within that industry, whatever it is, and this, the specificity of positions, whatever they are, you as a headhunter need to be able to, in the, within the first 30 seconds, when the hiring manager says to you, I need a software engineer who can do robotic operating systems. Off the top of my head, me or my recruiters go boom, 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 and can go down through that stack and know immediately who and why. And then immediately we can know the adjacent markets that we potentially could recruit out of and then fly those by the hiring manager. And the hiring manager goes, huh, yeah, you know, I guess that would be appropriate. What I have just done there and what every recruiter needs to be able to do in that instance is almost be smarter than the hiring manager. And you should, based on where the talent is in the marketplace. Why? Your hiring manager is not hiring, is recruiting. They are facilitating candidates coming into their purview on the interview schedule. You need to be able to go, hey, here are seven other companies that are doing similar technologies that may be in or outside your area of your product market. And here's why I think that. When you can start to do that in nearly every single position, when you're on the phone with your client, you suddenly have boxed out every single competitor. Yet, what do I see? You pointed it out. I see people who kind of know their market. I see people who kind of will fall into working a desk because it's better than the garbage desk they just jumped off of, yet they didn't commit 30 days of over-the-top studying. You can go to Khan Academy and learn any business. You can go to YouTube and learn the, any business. You could sit in the pocket and invest 30 days of insane studying to then for the rest of your recruiting life be a subject matter expert, and then be able to demonstrate it at scale online that can double to triple your earnings within 12 months of a year. There's no doubt about it. You've just given me a little moment of inspiration here because I think, uh, well, I believe fundamentally that managers have one top priority, which is to hire brilliantly. Now, I believe that recruitment interviewing should be a daily KPI, and it should be something that they do consistently without fail. Hiring managers equivalent of a salesperson prospecting for new customers is prospecting for people to fit on their bench so that they've got five, six, seven people lined up for when a vacancy occurs. If someone dies, leaves, or you can, you've hit a, uh, hit a target that means you can hire, you can then go to people and you just make the offer to number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and you can fill the vacancy in a day. And then all you have to do is worry about their notice period and make sure that you're constantly filled. Now, what about recruitment as a service? Is anybody out there offering to work on a monthly retainer to consistently fill the pipeline? Yeah, so 
The answer is yes, and we've been doing that. So that started with us with Google and Johnson & Johnson five years ago. They had hired us to build out a substantial robotic platform for them. And we were on a monthly retainer in order to fill positions, but also to have bench strength on, on, on critical positions that they knew were going to be coming six to nine months from now. So not just in case somebody left, we sat with them, with Google and J&J, and they said, our hiring initiative this year are these 120 positions. Now, we're going through some clinical studies, and some of these things are not going to happen until August, September, October. But what we want to do is we want the pipeline loaded in the Q1. We want to talk to all the people. We then want to keep them apprised of what's going on. And we want you to load our bench strength up. So that was one company that did with us. There's another company in the UK that did that with us. They're on the FTSE 100. Halma, H-A-L-M-A. Halma had paid us to keep their bench loaded with diversity candidates, with candidates within certain skill sets, with these what they call MDs, which is their divisional presidents. And they paid us to keep those that bench, and in their case, it was in case an opening came up. They weren't planning on the opening needing to come up, but they were able to react very, very quickly based upon the diversity profiles they gave us, as well as the MDs, the presidents. And that was due to a long partnership, and they knew that we understood both the skills and the culture that revolved around that organization. And those, and I did those at lower rates. Because it, what it did, it allowed me while I was doing the rest of my search business to be, ah, she would be awesome for that MD role Helma. Let me pitch it to her, let her know it's not happening right now, but we want to put her into their universe. And by the way, we'll send you some information around what potentially could come. That becomes an incredibly powerful sort of marketing pitch for me as the headhunter that companies believe in me that much. And also my clients then don't have downtime nor do they only hire the best person available within the 30-day window, which is the kiss of death for most organizations? Absolutely. Again, uh, hire slow, fire fast, and never compromise on recruitment. And um, the, you've touched on something else, which is critical. Um, typically, to fill a sales vacancy with someone halfway decent will take somewhere between 12 and 16 weeks. That's 12 to 16 weeks of ramp up and selling time. The cost to your business, if they're on a 1.2 million pound target, is 300 to 400 thousand pounds in revenue. It just makes sense. So find a good recruiter, and I know that's a, a big ask, but find a good recruiter and pay them a monthly retainer. Keep your bench filled, and to keep those candidates warm, so that when you are ready to hire, then you don't make that loss. And you don't ever have an empty slot. Uh, what you've got is people who come in during the handover period so that they can transfer. There can be knowledge transfer and you can do a proper handover. And the other thing that I don't see happen anywhere near enough are proper exit interviews and the exit interview then feeding the revision of the job hiring template. And this strikes me as crazy as well, because you've got all this knowledge and you've been doing the job two, three years. You know what the job actually entails. Why would you not want to capture that as the employer? And I want to go back to the proposition that you had. And there are some headhunters right now rolling their eyes, saying that they could never get a company to agree to keep them on that sort of retainer. 
Well, that's because you're not thinking creatively. What if you went to a customer and you said, and let's say, you know, we get 25% first year earnings in my firm. What if I said to them, look, for 2021, I'm going to propose to you something. I'm going to keep your pipeline filled up. I want you to pay me $15,000 a month for the next 12 months, and I'm going to keep your pipeline filled. I will, for every candidate you hire, I will credit a percentage of that $15,000 to the final fee. You're not going to pay me more money. If you don't make hires, I keep the 15. You're going to pay me the 15 a month, and then I will credit you three of those searches, 5,000 each. So when you get the invoice for 40,000 American, you only have to pay me 35,000. But if you don't make a hire that month, I keep it because I'm still doing the work for you. So your client is investing in themselves, and they're also not paying more on the search fee. And you get to have a cash flow in your organization. And if you do that with three or four clients, you can dramatically differ, differ how you build your search firm moving forward and the types of people you should have in your search firm, not just people who hump the phone, but actually content development people, sort of customer service people, search firm experience people, all of these. That's, that's the other thing that search firms have to get out of, off of just the person who humps the phone and the admin person who makes the mail come in. That, that's an entire new restructuring that needs to be evaluated in the organizations. Well, again, if you do that, then you become a strategic partner to your customer. And very few recruiters are viewed as, everyone blathers on about being a trusted advisor. But I think that's a terrible, terrible cliche. What you should be is a trusted partner. And partners help each other get better. And partners challenge one another and they question the direction. They question why someone is doing what they're doing. They prevent them. They save them from performing acts of idiocy and self-sabotage or embarrassing themselves. And you've touched on a couple of really interesting points here. Develop your brand as a recruiter of potential talent and also focus your attention on making sure that the recruitment process is something that delivers an experience to the candidates so they never forget it. Because in future, when they are approached, I mean, think about this. You've just hired someone of great talent who's going to generate millions of dollars a year for your business. And now they're being approached by other headhunters who are doing the same old shit different day and treating them like they were a slave uh, trader in the forum in Rome, and they're try trying to transact, that's going to leave a very bitter taste in their mouth. And they're going to say to themselves, you know, I'm better off where I am. And that way you get to keep the people that you've invested in, that you've trained, that you've onboarded, that you've coached, and you've turned in or you've helped develop to meet their full potential. Absolutely. And you bring up a really good point. You know who the most, you know who the least important person is in the placement process? the person you just placed, because they are now off the market for the next one, two, five years. You know who the most important people are? Are the people who were the last 10 finalists that didn't get the offer, because they're still available and they're still hungry for a job and they still are counting on you and trusted you enough to take the first phone call, to send you the CV, to take a day off from work, to go interview, to then that debrief, to expose themselves to a new career opportunity, and what do a majority of recruiters do? They ghost those people, or they're too slow in getting back to them with bad news. And I will tell you, 
the most valuable thing you can do as a recruiter above everything else is treat the people who don't get the job offer, who went out on an interview for you. If you don't treat them as gold, you're a moron and you're going to get out of business. If you treat them as gold, they will return your phone calls. They will go out on another interview for you and they will become sort of miners of information for you because the number of people that disrespect and ghost them is profound and mind-blowing to me. So keep that in mind. Stop with catering to the person you just placed. Certainly respect them. But the 10 people who came in second and third, go give them some love and respect. So, so important. And they will be referral sources. All day long. All day long. So, Joe, we've come to the top of the hour. This has been a thrilling and a really insightful conversation. I'd love to do this again if you're game. I'm up for it. It's, you ask fabulous questions and offer fabulous insight. And there's nothing more that I love is challenging, intelligent conversation with people who understand the opportunities and challenges in our, in our profession. Thank you. Well, coming from you, I take that as incredible flattery. I'm delighted. Tell me, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Finding enough good headhunters for my firm because we are about to move into the golden age of recruiting. If you think about it, so I've got an offer going out next week to a fellow in the UK. I can't tell you who he is right now. And we're, we're hiring there. We just hired somebody else remote in Cleveland, Ohio, which I've never done before. HR always sucked at recruiting anyway. They never wanted to do it. Somebody threw it into their ballywick a long time ago. HR is HR. Recruiting is recruiting. But Every time you think about the next year to 18 months while we go through this, and it's not going to end before then, these individuals in HR are going to be overworked, under-resourced. They're going to have to be onboarding people, handling furloughed people, dealing with environmental health and safety issues, protocols inside the organization. They will have zero time to do recruiting. And so who's going to do it? We are. Our community is. And so I'm right now trying to hire five to 10 recruiters for my firm, who will fit the intelligence, the work rate, the commitment to the craft, and the no bullshit approach to really changing people's lives. That's my challenge right now. And we're aggressively, we're going to solve the problem. And we actually have a recruiter for recruiters who is located out of the UK, Walter Doherty, doing work for us. And so with that, if you're interested in working for a firm like ours, you know, cheap pitch here. Give me a call because we are looking for really good recruiters right now. Excellent. I'll keep an eye out for you as well. I appreciate um, that. Excellent. Okay. So you've got a golden ticket and you could go back and advise the idiot Joe age 23. Yeah. What choice bit of advice would you give him? Even if you have no regrets, what choice bit of advice would you give him? Yeah. So good. I don't have any regrets. I reflect on everything, but I regret nothing. What I would talk to the moron at 23 was never think small, take a 50% cut in pay, and then put your search firm in a bigger city so you get a better chance of attracting a larger number of talented people who see what you see. That's what it would have been. I would have bought a smaller house and put more money into my firm. I would have had less cars and put more money into my firm. And I could have gotten to where I am happily at today a lot quicker. Good advice. What are you watching, reading, listening to that you really rate that do you think other either recruiters or managers, salespeople should be paying heed to? 
So as an author, I'm a big fan of Yuval Harari uh, in general. So I, I love reading him. And no matter what you do as a person, it's just an interesting way to look at things. I love Jordan Peterson. Jordan's amazing. So I listen to as much what Jordan can put out as possible. And I love Brene Brown. I mean, those are three very different people Absolutely. that uh, I get my uh, thoughts and inspiration from. Again, I agree with all three of those. I'd strongly recommend uh, David Epstein on uh, his book, Range is brilliant. I'd also read uh, Jay Heinrich's book, Thank You for Arguing, uh, which is all about rhetoric. And it's genuinely fascinating. I interviewed him uh, about a month ago, and it opened my eyes to a whole different aspect of communication. And I rather enjoyed the Thinking Bigly by Scott Adams. And what was his uh, more recent book? I can't remember off the top of my head, but that's worth a read, looking at how you can get out of your own echo chamber. Now, I don't necessarily agree with him all the way through, but it's, it causes you to think. And in fact, um, another one, if you haven't read it, Keith Cunningham's book, The Road Less Stupid. <laughs> I'll look at that one. That, and that's, I would, that's a must read. I would throw Thomas Friedman in there too. I like Thomas Friedman. Thank you for being late. Uh, he's got a couple of things out there that are really interesting to look at. So those are mine too. Excellent. Joe, how can people get hold of you? Uh, you can reach me at joe at mullingsgroup.com or certainly you can find me on LinkedIn. And I pride myself on getting back to nearly everybody, especially I get back to every recruiter who ever reaches out to me and I try and get back to every single person who ever reaches out to me. And in fairness, you were incredibly responsive when I contacted you. So thank you for that. And what about your YouTube channel? So uh, it's Joe Mullings or it's True Future. Those two, uh, you can find my website at joemullings.com. And then I'm super proud of the docu-series that we put out called truefuture.tv. Excellent. Joe Mullings, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you're curious about whether or not you'd make a good guest, then why not ping me an email at marcuskauke at me.com or marcus at laughs, L-A-U-G-H-S, hyphen last.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then please like, comment, and share, and subscribe. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.